0: Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, where we try to understand authoritarianism and the strategies and tactics that authoritarians use in order to better resist. I'm Ahmed Gatnash of the Kawakibi Foundation, and today I'm with Joey Ayoub. Joey is a Lebanese writer who used to be the Middle East and North Africa editor for Global Voices and IFEX and he's doing a PhD on the politics of post-war Lebanese cinema. Welcome, Joey. I've been really eager to have this conversation for quite a long time and I have a really long set of notes that we're never gonna get through but it'll be a fun discussion regardless. There's a major problem that's causing a lot of people distress especially judging by the last 72 hours or so of Twitter. And that is the left's problem with authoritarianism. There's a very widespread perception, and I definitely argue that it's more than a perception. The left wing, globally, not just in any particular place, has an extremely uncomfortable affinity with authoritarianism in general and certain strands of it especially. And that this affinity has been a very long-term problem, and it goes against some of the self-declared ideals of left-wing thought and it's certainly become a a bit of a joke in some circles but I mean most people will know what I'm talking about but what background can you give on this?
1: I think fundamentally what the problem that we're talking about you know many theorists like Stone, the Canadian theorist who passed away recently called it a dualistic worldview of the cold war so you know you might call this campism it's it's Pretty direct, it's pretty simple in the way you can understand it. If you are someone who calls themselves a anti imperialist, you might kind of simplify your worldview by pretending or acting upon this belief and saying, for example, that the state that opposes the state that you belong to, or that is perceived in any case that way, is a state that you can either support or at least whitewash. So basically, downplay its importance. So we see this most notoriously, I guess, when it comes to Syria, when it comes to the, to the Russian government, but also comes in various formats. You know, you can speak about the whitewashing of the Assad regime in Syria, the whitewashing of Nicolas Maduro in, in Venezuela, Ortega, you know. The list can go on and on and on. And it does get a bit messy when you get into individual countries, now it is true that there's a wider tendency. That's absolutely true. And I think we, we are seeing this especially sort of forming, I don't know, turning into some sort of monstrosity because of social media, or at least social media is making it more apparent. I don't think social media is necessarily creating it because this is a, a, a very old phenomenon. You know, people on the left who are anti authoritarian like myself, we have this term called tanky. And this term, like we use it uh, sometimes as an insult, To accuse other leftists who are very authoritarian of being authoritarians. But it has a very, very uh dark origins. Tanky, as you might you know notice from from the name, comes from tank. And so essentially it goes back to 1956 when the Soviet Union invaded Hungary and with tanks. So that split the Communist Party in in the UK, especially, into what might what you might call today tankies and anti-tankies. So those who would justify the invasion and those who were not justifying it and those who were opposing it. And, you know, you saw this later on with the invasion of Czechoslovakia and then the invasion of Afghanistan in 56 and 79, I think, respectively, if I'm not mistaken. And that term sort of, I think, died out in the 90s and early 2000s. And it's sort of coming back now because we're sort of seeing this rhetoric of, quote unquote, anti-imperialism being used to justify all sorts of horrible regimes.
0: That's really interesting. So basically, there's this binary mindset, which splits the world into uh, imperialists and anti-imperialists. And anybody who we perceive as being on the anti-imperialist side is our side, they're our hero, they're our guy, and we support them. And if it seems like they're doing some uncomfortable stuff, we try to minimize that, we try to justify it, we try to ignore it. And I guess there are two types of these people. Some of them you know, are widely admired and they have very positive principles, which is what makes it uncomfortable when you realize that they're engaged in whitewashing for certain brutal regimes. Whereas other people have a, a more generalized type of this condition where they just seem to bounce from country to country, legitimizing every authoritarian that they come across from Latin America to the Middle East, to China, anybody who is, is it, it—it almost becomes a hatred of the West it becomes a a reverse us and them and anybody who is fighting america is a good guy and in that way i guess it's quite like a form of radicalization like rather than hindutva which you know splits the hindus from the other or islamic extremism which uh, has the believers and the unbelievers you basically end up with imperialists and anti-imperialists or even the capitalists and
1: anti-capitalists oh well the worst thing you can be called by these people is a liberal that's, that's, how they, 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 that's how they insult you. They think that that's the worst thing they can call you, uh, which is a bit ironic, I think. But yes, I mean, it doesn't even have to be that the government opposes the government, your government, as long as it does so rhetorically. Russia doesn't necessarily oppose the U.S. government in Syria. The actual dynamics are very much, much more complicated than this. They fought together, if you want, or at least bombed together when it comes to ISIS territories. And they shared the sky. That notorious or now notorious attack, you know, that uh, the missiles that Trump launched some years ago, before doing that, they announced it to the Russian government because to avoid accidental, you know, fire. And you, I mean, you, the details in this are quite incredible because you can talk about Nicolás Maduro sending, what was it, $500,000 or something to Trump's inauguration. You can speak about Ortega, I believe one of his... Or one of, I forgot what it was, but one of Trump's religious preachers went to Ortega, was invited by Ortega to sort of blend in this social conservatism with a quote unquote anti imperialist rhetoric. And obviously, the most notorious example, I guess, is Vladimir Putin, one of the most right wing politicians in the world today, also kind of uh, blending in this sort of anti imperialist rhetoric with ultra right wing uh, social conservatism. So the the facts in themselves don't matter, I, I guess is it would be my point here. It doesn't actually matter whether the government is actually quote unquote opposing the U.S. or not opposing the U.S.
0: And a lot of the time, it's not only empty anti-imperialist rhetoric, but it's anti-imperialist rhetoric deployed to disguise the ruler's own imperialist designs, whether it's Vladimir Putin annexing parts of Ukraine, taking over Syrian territory, whether it's the Chinese government and what they're doing to minorities in the Far East, or even their economic activity elsewhere, like in Africa. Even Gaddafi, the, the lauded anti-imperialist hero who... uh actually did try an imperial venture of his own at one point, and he was so humiliatingly defeated in the war in Chad that he never had the courage to try it again. None of these people are for self-determination in any way.
1: No, absolutely not. I mean, you you can really go down the details here. You can speak about Gaddafi's love for Berlusconi and how much that that doesn't exactly portray you as someone on the left. But again, you know, these really go back to the fact that it has nothing to do with reality. And the, my 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 hesitation to kind of ascribe it something that is specifically Western or not Western is the examples that I've learned since, because that's how I used to look at it. But it is very much a problem of the old Arab left and the Arab world. And by old Arab left, I mean the one that was not crushed by the, by the regime. So the left that is tolerated by the regime, like the left in Syria, whatever is left of it anyway.
0: Yeah, that's also a tragic example. You have um, certain Arab leftists, mostly of the previous generation, who, um, you know, they they spent many years advocating for the rights of Palestinians, writing about the oppression that impoverished people face in the Arab world. And then they come out and defend Bashar al-Assad and even support Hezbollah whilst they're shelling Syrian children and murdering innocent civilians. And the reason is because he's ostensibly pro-Palestine even whilst he's murdered uh, over 4,000 Palestinians, including in torture camps.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, Hezbollah, you know, you can, we can speak about this example briefly, since I am from Lebanon. Hezbollah is quite, is it's in an open alliance with the most anti-Palestinian party in modern Lebanese politics, the, free, the so-called free patriotic movement, led by Michel Aoun, the current president. And Aoun is a war criminal himself. Yes, yes. So like, you know, again, so it goes back to this point, see what what I mean, that it is a worldview, but that worldview is predicated upon a sort of hostility towards reality. It's almost like the whole point of this is uh, inability or unwillingness, I I should say, to accept complexity, to accept nuance, that to even accept the possibility that in, in one situation, there may be more than one oppressor. That one may be opposed to U.S. intervention in Syria, but that one at least should at least recognize that the U.S. is not the biggest actor in Syria. And that that is something that is not abnormal unless you consider, uh, unless you look at the world through a framework in which the United States is sort of like this global police that has its hands in everything. And all of these governments have absolutely no agency of their own. No CIA of their own, no torturers of their own, no war criminals of their own, no police of their own. And that just betrays a, a lack of, of understanding of individual countries' complexities. And
0: a desire to reduce every country to a single template, which is, uh, you know, native people yes. doing their best to resist the CIA's plots and American imperialism and being destabilized from within whenever there's a native movement for liberation against a tyrant. It's a CIA-funded plot. It's US-funded, US-backed agitators. Uh, like they're smearing protesters in Hong Kong right now. Like they've been smearing uh, Bolivian environmental activists who in the last couple of weeks have been raising the alarm about government-supported, or certainly government, turning a blind eye to massive forest fires burning down parts of the Amazon Fagri business, and and they've been smeared
1: as CIA conspirators. Basically, when Bolsonaro's people do that, they are not made as CIA conspirators because we accept that Bolsonaro is right-wing. But when uh, Evo Morales' people do that, we then go to these conspiracy theories because no left-wing or quote-unquote left-wing government would do that, even though Evo Morales uh, you know, has pretty much adopted a social conservative politics, especially when it comes to indigenous rights, which betrays his whole platform of how he got elected in the first place. And part of it
0: is a tribalism, that um, because they're on the left, they're on our team, and therefore we have to fight the bad team. Exactly. Uh, We mentioned Palestine, and, you know, there's this phrase, progressive except Palestine. Um, On this topic, we get the opposite, that they're only progressive on Palestine. With a lot of people, they're extremely passionate about the rights of Palestinians, which, of course, we support. But it's jarring that just across the border... Syria, a few kilometers away, and a country which hosts its own refugee camps for Palestinians. As soon as they cross that, they flip 180 degrees, and suddenly there's this really bizarre one that I saw a tweet earlier. This guy, I'm not going to name him, but he basically tweeted from Damascus on some kind of apparently state-sponsored whitewashing trip about the bars and how, um, you know... Cohabitation was becoming more accepted after people had seen the radical extremist rebels and how people were able to drink at night, etc. Doesn't and, that sound um, familiar? Yeah, an Israeli friend actually replied and said, uh, "There's another country in the world which touts its uh, the ability to drink alcohol there and go to bars and uh, tolerance of LGBT, and they're equally repressive on human rights, but you're not whitewashing them."
1: Exactly. But, you know, when, when I mean, this has been pointed out time and time again for years now, including by Palestinians. But the difficulty in speaking about the Palestinian cause in this case is because for me, there is the Palestinian cause, as in the rights of Palestinians for self-determination and so on and so forth, which I'm sure most of the audience already supports, I would assume in any case. But then there is, quote unquote, the Palestinian cause that is dominated in Western circles, or at least being dominated by Westerners, especially online. And I should uh, nuance this a bit more. It's not just Westerners. It's just being dominated by Westerners. There are many Arabs that participate in this as well. And the problem with that is that it does go back to this binary. And as long as you can uh, say that Israel is a state that is unlike any other state in the world, as opposed to saying that Israel is a state that commits horrific violations of human rights, and we should pose it because of that, And we should deconstruct how it was founded. We should deconstruct nationalism. We should deconstruct Zionism. We should deconstruct settler colonialism. We should even, I would say, go further and understand the history of the region, the history of the Holocaust, the history of so many different things. That requires a sort of acceptance of complexity instead of just saying this, that. And the problem with uh, the way the Palestinian cause is being framed now is that it's being seen as the only cause. And I think that the the post-2011 landscape has sort of de-centered the Palestinian cause from the minds of many Arabs. And I should be very careful here, because de does not mean it is not important. Absolutely not. It just means that it is now, or at least those among us who want to be more progressive about it, we are, we are trying to link it to struggles throughout the region, in the Arab world, Arab majority world, I should say, and beyond. And
0: there's a recognition by many people that Palestine has use, has been used as an opiate for so long by these dictators who are willing to use it as a fig leaf for their oppression. Gaddafi uh, being held up as, oh, at least he's pro-Palestine or, you know, other regional rulers who, whenever they're faced, even Latin American rulers who, whenever they're faced with something inconvenient, pull out Palestine and, do, and make some kind of overtly pro-Palestinian gesture as a distraction.
1: Yes, and I mean, you know, those of us who are especially familiar with Syria obviously know that one of the most notorious branches is called the Palestine branch of the Assad regime. And, and that, that's a branch is... of the
0: secret police, right?
1: Yes, that's a branch of the secret police. You know, one of the most notorious, if if not the mo- no, most notorious one, if I'm not mistaken. I do get names wrong sometimes, so you have to to forgive me on that. But you know, what I try to do sometimes, to, to go back to this example, is I try to compare what some leftists say and I try and see if there is a similar quote or an identical quote by someone on the far right. And our personalities that are very interesting because by and large, I think people on the left who engage in these, uh, let's call them tendencies, to be sort of kind about it. I think we can be much less kind about it, but let's go for that uh, with that for now. They are kind of in denial about the sort of uh, fellow travelers that are with them. So one person that I tend to focus on sometimes because I th- I see him as very interesting and in the wrong possible ways, is a man called Mad- Matthew Heimberg. He's one of the leaders, if you want, of the, of, the, of the white nationalist movement in America right now. And I think his group, if I'm not mistaken, is called something like the Tradition- Traditionalist Worker Party. And this guy, and I actually wrote down a quote because I wanted to mention it here. In 2014, and this is from this, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center in the US, he said, and I quote, we must understand a unity between those who struggle against the Zionist state and international Jewry here in the West and those on the streets of Gaza, Syria, and Lebanon. I should emphasize 2014, not just any month of 2014, but this was during the war on Gaza by the Israeli state. And then he continues, we are facing a truly satanic enemy, one that cannot be understood except through the lens of Christianity and Christian prophecy. Now, I mentioned this guy not to say that leftists are thinking like him. Obviously not. This guy is quite an extreme case in his home. I'm trying to to just point out that if someone calls themselves anti-Zionist or anti-imperialist or anti-whatever that you think is good, uh, or let's say it's a good position to have, that doesn't automatically mean that they have good politics on everything. This feels like it should be more obvious. But unfortunately, as we can see time and time again, it doesn't seem to be as obvious as it should be. This is a man who says that he's opposed to the Zionist state. Well, I am opposed to the Zionist state. But then he continues it and says, I am he is opposed to international Jewry. And for me, that is a big red alarm because that is obviously anti-Semitism. And indeed, this guy is, is a Holocaust denier, pro-Nazi, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And what's fascinating about this guy is that here you have this white guy from America, and he happily posts photos of himself with Hezbollah t-shirts and with SSNP flags. And for me that is very fascinating because it sort of symbolizes. That just as now we have these so-called leftists who are visiting Damascus on a on, on a tour and posting about it on social media, just a few days ago, if less than a week ago, there was the far right in, from France that did the same thing, and the far right from Italy, Casapound, that did the same thing. And by and large, I've been visiting, I've been sorry, I've been following the visits to Damascus, especially by obviously by Westerners who have been visiting Damascus, and it's been something like on the ballpark of something like 70, 80% on the far right, and then something like 30, 20% on the so-called left. You know, you have Tulsi Cabar, you have uh, Dennis Kucinich, you have some people on the Spanish left that I wrote, uh, that I focused on a couple of years ago, et cetera, et cetera. And it just shows that there is a sort of severe cognitive dissonance among people on the left who still uh, want to pretend like they're not seeing the writing on the wall as to what this actually means. And especially what this means to Syrian refugees who have fled this regime. I'm personally very
0: fond of horseshoe theory, which is basically the idea that the political spectrum isn't a straight line where the two ends are as far as possible from each other, but it's actually shaped like a horseshoe, where you go from left to right, and then you go so far around that you end up very close to each other, so that the far right and the far left are extremely similar. In the first couple of years after the Arab Spring began, I remember Nick Griffin, the founder of the British Nationalist Party and one of the most notorious racist figures in modern British political history, was uh, in Syria to congratulate Assad and support him and lend his solidarity. And like you said, various European uh, far-right and nationalist and even fascist figures are continuously visiting, and yet self-proclaimed leftists are there as well.
1: Well, you can you can sort of think about that as the BNP on one side, but you also have someone like George Galloway who is openly oh, yeah. hugging someone like Nigel Farage. You know, like it's sort of become much more open in the past years. I I remember very 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 well in 2015 and especially in 2016 up until the the months before the fall of Aleppo, end of 2016, that we've we've we were having this conversation myself and a few Syrian and Palestinian other friends. And we sort of agreed, if you want, that these people who have been causing so much damage, and by which I mean the people who are engaging in this information, whether consciously or unconsciously online, they will at some point lose. So it's not that we were worried that they will create a whole system on their own in 10 years or whatever. Our fear was more, and I think it was vindicated uh, by the end of 2016, and I would say even to this day, is that they will take up so much space online because all of these battles are being fought online as well as obviously in the real world, but let's separate the two for a second. Since they take up so much space online, then most of the time, the rest of us, activists, uh, humanitarians, refugees, whoever, like all of these people who just oppose atrocities, are basically on the defensive. Like you have to spend so much time just debunking campaigns of disinformation. Yes, yeah, seeing... the
0: the bullshit asymmetry principle where exactly, uh, exactly. bullshit takes an order of magnitude more effort to clean up than it takes to create.
1: Yes, exactly. And just to go back briefly to the Horseshoe theory, it's not that I disagree with it in practice. I, I, this does seem to be the case time and time again, and I have no real intention of, of denying it. My only, um, let's call it in addition to that... Is that I think the word far left in itself doesn't mean anything. I think the word far right is very obvious and it's very distinctive. It is pretty much associated with neo-Nazis, white nationalists, the KKK. And, uh, and the Arab version of that would be something like the SSNP or the Assad regime and so on and so forth. Ba'athists, basically. Yes, Barthes and so on, even though Barthes, as we know, is basically originally is a sort of synch- syncretic uh, form of uh, nationalism and so-called Arab socialism, which ended up just being authoritarian, uh, one party state rule. Uh, so, yeah, just wanted to add on that.
0: So, yeah, this is uh, really why I wanted to have this conversation with you and why I've been waiting for so long to have it with you, because I don't consider myself to be on the left personally, but I see the value of that the intellectual tradition brings in terms of understanding power dynamics, in terms of the focus on the oppressed and the underprivileged and making their condition better in society. And I think it contributes something positive to the political spectrum generally, even though I don't consider myself to be on the left. So I didn't want this discussion to become something overly polemical or aggressive, but I wanted to actually give it a nuanced understanding and treatment of where where these problems come from on the left, and uh, what the path forward is. So I want to go back a bit in history, because um, back when I was kind of gaining my political awareness in the early to mid-2000s, we mentioned George Galloway, and I remember him being extremely big in UK politics. He was very vociferously against the Iraq War, one of the few political figures who was that vocally against it. And he was vindicated, of course. And... He was also very strongly pro-Palestine throughout his entire time in politics. And many people remember that time when it was incredibly difficult to get a mainstream political figure to talk about Palestine. And many people, especially who have links to the Middle East, remember very fondly his advocacy against the war. And um, so I'm mainly talking about the older generation here have this kind of sentimental bond to some of these figures who have since turned extremely reactionary. You mentioned that over the Brexit vote, he actually embraced Nigel Farage. He's embraced uh, Bashar al-Assad, the butcher of Syria. He's uh, vociferously defended Gaddafi. He actually did engage in defense of Saddam Hussein as well back in the day, but people overlooked that a bit. There's other even more respected figures on the left, like um, Noam Chomsky the celebrated intellectual who's made important contributions and it did come as a very uncomfortable discovery to me when I found out post-2011 from Syrian friends that when we started noticing his regressive stances on Syria, people told me that he'd actually had a history of genocide denial in other parts of the world as
1: well. Yes, Bosnia and Cambodia most notoriously You see, uh, with Chomsky, I think it's also a very interesting uh, story because I had actually met him when he came to Beirut in 2013. Uh, I was graduating from the American University of Beirut as an undergrad, and he was the keynote speaker, and we briefly met after that. And he was also like very, very formative uh, influence in my early years, I would say, pretty much up until roughly 2013, 2014, because around 2013 is when I started really getting into Syrian politics. And I had absolutely no idea about anything related to Bosnia, anything related to Cambodia. Uh, but so to, I want to I want to say two things at the same time, and I will link it with what I want to say about George Galloway as well. You mentioned that he did whitewash Saddam Hussein, and he did absolutely. And I think this was sort of the trap. So this is something that I we are able to say we can say now in hindsight. So. I think that there is a case, there's a good argument to be made that even during the buildup to the war in Iraq, and I'm not going to judge too harshly the people who were opposing it back then because there was such a propaganda machine on the on, on the American and British side that basically it was the reverse situation where they were being uh, on the defense, so to speak. But I think that there's a case to be made that even back then, Iraqi voice were not necessarily privileged. And this is a, an early warning side, but only something that I can say in retrospect, as someone who back then was just, you know, I was like 12 or 13 or something. So I obviously didn't know anything about it. And his, his whitewashing, let's say, of Saddam Hussein should kind of link the story to another one, which is what you mentioned that he is pro-Palestine. I would sort of nuance it a bit and say he's not necessarily pro-Palestine. He is anti-Israel. And I know that most of the time, these are pretty much the same thing. And if you are a Palestinian, that is not my position to say yes or no. If you think there's all the same things, okay, that is uh, a politics that needs to be resolved locally, let's say. But non-Palestinians don't get that privilege, in my opinion, or shouldn't get that right. If they support Palestine because they oppose Israel, okay, that's one thing. But I need, we need to know, we need to demand, if you want, to see how how serious is their support of Palestinians. Because George Galloway only supports the Palestinians in Syria as long as they are pro-Assad. If they are not pro-Assad, these Palestinians are not worthy of his support. And so for me, this creates a hierarchy between worthy human beings and unworthy human beings. And I think that's extremely dangerous. It's uh, It becomes
0: selective um, promotion of human rights. Yeah, selective empathy, selective solidarity. Yeah, and uh, so two things um, caught my attention there. One of them was uh, how you mentioned that Iraqi voices weren't really elevated during the opposition to the Iraq war, and that was a warning sign. We've seen since then left-wing movements in the UK rallying against a fictional fantasy war on Syria make a concerted effort not not only ignoring Syrian voices but actually making an effort to eject them and silence them and remove them from view when they said the uncomfortable, which was, you guys are standing in solidarity with a dictator who is butchering my country.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure you're obviously referring to the Stop the War movement in the UK. Absolutely. Uh, and they became this, incredibly regressive more, more and more yes. over time. And the Stop the War movement, I had written an article about, about them back then, I think in 2014. There was something fascinating that happened. I think you will especially identify with that because you're Libyan. Uh, they wrote, I think Chris Ninham, who's the co-secretary or something, wrote a an article called uh, basically uh, opposing a no-fly zone, which was barely being promoted in any case in, in, in serious terms in British politics. But as usual, they were overblowing it. And he so he wrote an article called uh, something along the lines that like, uh, you support a no-fly zone, ask Libyans about it. And what's fascinating about that article is that he is basically asking us to ask Libyans But there isn't a single Libyan quoted throughout that thing. Not a single poll. Not a single activist. Nothing. And indeed, and they
0: themselves didn't ask Libyans and uh, ignored the overwhelming support for the Libyan no-fly
1: zone in 2011 by Libyans. That's exactly that's exactly what was going to go with it. So it was kind of like well, now in retrospect, when I started, it's kind of like I started realizing things, but in reverse. If you see what I mean, Syria was sort of like a warning sign, but a warning sign that was sort of become making things incredibly uncomfortable. I think Ramah Kudemi, if I'm not mistaken, a Syrian activist, a Syrian American activist on Twitter, if I'm not mistaken, she she wrote something along the lines of Palestine allows us to, to differentiate between people on the left and people on the right, or something along those lines. But then Syria allows us to further differentiate those who are truly on our side, our being in this case, you know, oppressed groups, etc. And those who are kind of like hypocrites about it i'm completely i'm probably butchering the code that you wrote but that's that's generally the the meaning behind it the general meaning behind it so yeah like it was in reverse kind of like in hindsight and that's obviously the problem with hindsight is that you wish you had that back then that there were early warning signs and i'm sure bosnians would say well you know the early warning signs were not in the 2000s the early warning signs were in the 90s and you have people who say, well, no, they were in the 80s. Well, no, they were in the 70s. Well, no, they were when the tanks uh, went to Budapest. You know, like there is, it will always be extremely difficult to start saying, well, when did this start? There are many people uh, among the anarchist tendencies, which I tend to be in that category, who would say, well, no, it, it started like 100 years ago, even before that. It started with the second international. It's extremely difficult to say, well, this is when it started. I think when it comes to post 2011, it at least at least the thing that we should be saying is that it requires a new framework that encompasses all of these nuances and learns from all of the mistakes that were committed prior 2011 and unfortunately since
0: 2011.
1: Hmm. And uh, well, I guess we can't say right
0: now without a very exhaustive study when it started, but. We can certainly say that social media and the modern media landscape has made it undeniable now. And those of us who may have missed warning signs earlier can only apologize to those who we didn't listen to at the time, apologize to Bosnians who were pointing this out and say, well, we're sorry we didn't listen at the time.
1: Yes, that's exactly it. And I think that we should be very wary of the fact that back when Bosnians were being slaughtered, and even before the genocide was happening, even in in the months before it and uh, before them, many the multiple genocides, the warning signs were already there. There were journalists there, not just Bosnians, but like Western journalists, French journalists, whatever journalists who were there and who were saying that this is what's happening. They were literally documenting it as it as it was happening. And this was before the time of the internet, obviously, and there, it it does say something that even back then. Many of those who did speak out against what was happening were not necessarily people on the left, were actually people on the right. And that's a sad legacy, if you want, of that time, because I don't believe that people on the right are necessarily ill-meaning automatically, but I automatically don't trust their final, let's say, uh, final goal. But we can put that to a different conversation. Yeah, I'd say
0: it's um, just a reminder that people's uh, political orientations are far more complex than a simple left-right binary, and a lot of the time to deal with these critical problems across the world, we need to work in coalitions and reject purity politics and narrow-minded tribalism
1: by a political sect. And I think that's especially true when we speak about the sort of wider-angle global politics. On a local level, it can be very difficult, but it depends on situation. I don't want to just feel like I'm you know, jumping from one country to another just uh, uh, without any, with, aim- aimlessly, basically. But I do think, especially when it comes to global politics, there are already principles in place that need to at least be acknowledged. Like for me, I, I wrote this article a couple of years ago, and I can, I can give this as another example that ties into this Liby- the, the Libyan example that you obviously know much better than I do. But for me, someone who is who was opposed, let's say, to the no-fly zone, my position towards that person is that if you want to be opposed to that particular policy, given that you are not the one who would suffer the consequences, you need to also work to be proposing an alternative. And if you don't have an alternative, you need to at least be humble enough to say so. You might say, well, this bothers me. But I admit I don't know what to do in this situation. Instead, what we have been seeing are people giving themselves the authority, kind of self-appointing a right to dictate what other people should or shouldn't want. And that's what I find extremely problematic.
0: And even beyond that, the ones who go so far as to smear people who do support an intervention and call them, you know, CIA stooges or pro-imperialists or whatever. You know, I, I... I do deeply respect the people who opposed intervention in Syria, even whilst I extremely passionately disagreed with them. And likewise with Libya, I I still remember and respect the people who opposed it, but with humility at the time and said, you know, this is a horrific situation. I sincerely think that military intervention will make it worse for these reasons. I'm willing to have a debate, but I don't think this is the right path. Rather than saying, you guys are all pro-NATO. Yes, exactly.
1: And that—that's basically what I'm trying to say here. Is—is I completely agree with that. And the Libyan example is such an obvious example, but unfortunately, it didn't stop there. So I want to go back to one of the things you
0: mentioned whilst you were talking about Galloway, which is um, you said that he isn't pro-Palestine so much as he's anti-Israel, and you mentioned some stuff about anti-Semitism, and uh, this is something else that we've seen come out of the left in recent years. Um, There have been. Scandals in the UK, political scandals involving large amounts of anti Semites in the Labour Party. I think most people who have been in those kinds of circles, not just in the UK but internationally, would agree that there is a problem and that it has been tolerated or quietly ignored for way too long. Even if you disagree on the extent of the problem and whether the media has uh, tried to have a ball with it, there is a very uncomfortable accommodation with anti Semites on the quote unquote pro Palestine cause.
1: Yes. And, the, you know, I mean, the media did have a go at it, but it doesn't deny the underlying problem. You know, Moshe Poston, to, to quote him again, this is a person I quite deeply respect. And in, in fact, just because we're mentioning that uh, Moshe Poston was introduced to me by a Bosnian friend. And these things are really something that I learned. Uh, and I had to accept that some of the people I used to hold high up, you know, as, as heroes, like Chomsky, among others, are themselves, to say the least, very flawed. But just to go back to that, not everyone who is an anti-Zionist is an anti-Semite. That is very obvious. And that should be repeated, especially as you have uh, pro-Netanyahu people in uh, you know, the Tory party and uh, lobbyists or politicians or the Republican Party, even the Democratic Party in the US and so on and so forth, who use that on purpose to silence anti-Zionist voices. But at the same time, that does not mean that no one who is an anti-Zionist is not an anti-Semite. I'm sorry, there's too many double negatives, but you see what I mean. You can be an anti-Zionist and an anti-Semite. You can even be an anti-Semite and pro-Zionist. Viktor Orban is one notorious example. Netanyahu's own son, who is obviously Jewish, peddled in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories when it comes to George Soros. These things are complicated, and they have to be recognized as complicated. But just as the Israeli government cynically instrumentalizes anti-Semitism and the memory of the Holocaust for its own uh, purposes, and I would say very nefarious purposes that actually make the problem much worse, that doesn't change the fact that I cannot control what the Israeli says and does. I can only oppose it and campaign against it. But what I can do, and here I'm using me as as kind of a, a neutral, not neutral, but like as a figure who is pro-Palestine, regardless of his or her background, what I can do is make sure to say that not a single racist, anti-Semite, homophobe, islamophobic, et cetera, xenophobic, et cetera, et cetera misogynist, transphobic, all categories of hate, not a single one of them is can be tolerated or accepted in our spaces. That is something that I can do as someone who is a pro-Palestine activist. That is something that is in my power because they do this in our name. And again, I'm using our here in a vague sense.
0: Yeah, I really like uh, Yed's position on this, which is extremely uncompromising on Twitter. He let me find a tweet. I remember him tweeting a couple of weeks ago something along the lines of this Palestinian will block with extreme prejudice anyone who sends me anti-Semitic messages of solidarity especially under the guise of solidarity with Palestinians.
1: And that is, un- unfortunately, it's not as uncommon as I think most of us would want to admit. And that is something that needs to be dealt with. I think Americans, by and large, and I, I should say this to their credit, are doing a much, much better job than Europeans are in that favor, and way better job than Arabs are in, in that respect when it comes to differentiate between the two. And I think that goes back to the specificity of Jewish-American progressive politics in America and how they are much more willing to be intersectional than other groups of people elsewhere in the world, if you want. Ultimately, what this whole saga
0: shows is that anti-authoritarianism and progressive activism can't work without anti-sectionality. You can't focus on a single cause to the exclusion of all else because you cannot have functional coalitions with people who are willfully complicit in other types of oppression, whether that's Palestine activism uh, in league with anti-Semites or pro-Arab spring activism in league with people who have denied
1: genocides in other places or otherwise. Yes. And, you know, we can we can speak about the problem that there are some among the anti-Assad circles who have sort of kind of gone the other way and became pro-Israel. You have some who basically became neocons. And so this is what I meant by my skepticism with this um, the Hoshu model. It's not that in practice it doesn't manifest itself that way. But in theory, it seems, it seems to me in any case, based on trying to observe as many different cases as possible, that the individual motivations are never just purely about beliefs or about how a certain a person views the world supposedly or not. I think there's a lot to be said as to how someone acts online in comparison to how that someone might act offline. There is a reason why most tankies are basically anonymous online and they're not you know, going through the streets with uh, Soviet flags or whatever because there, there seems to be a sense of, I don't know if it's embarrassment, but at least lack of confidence. And this lack of confidence can only be manifested if all of them basically kind of reinforce one another's insecurities, if you see what I mean. So these are phenomena that I think are being played out most viciously, I guess, in the age of social media. Although, as, as, as we said in the beginning, they did not necessarily start in the age of social media. I think we just see them more frequently than we may see them before, because the the, the natural filters, if you want, of mainstream media and journalism, as we used to know it before, social media, tended to kind of screen these people out before. Hmm. So, um, to go back to the narrative we were
0: tracing of the left in the West, basically 2011 broke the left, and that was arguably a function of the Iraq War, that it was so destructive, and so horrific, and so unnecessary, and the process that led to it so flawed, but something in the Western leftist psyche has been unable to move on from that, and when 2011 happened, the first and the only comparison they were able to make was 2003 Iraq and every time uh, an intervention is urged to stop imminent bloodshed every time support is urged to civil society fighting an authoritarian the comparisons are immediately to Iraq and this is like
1: Iraq all over again this is another intervention this is another war but you know what this says to me It's it says to me that unfortunately I think what we need to what we should be concluding from this is that what happened in 2003 is that people opposed this obviously illegal and immoral and barbaric invasion by the United States and the UK and, and, and their allies here and there. But then, by and large, they stopped thinking about Iraq. You might say that, you know, they continued thinking on more or less until Saddam's ex- execution, maybe, since, you know, that was in the media and everything. But at some point later on, what we might call the civil war and the collapse of the state and... and the increase in sectarianism under Maliki and all of that, there seems to me, in my opinion, again, this is something I can say in hindsight, because I think I was still too young back then to really understand this fully. There was a sort of distancing themselves from Iraq. So I wouldn't necessarily call it the shock of the Iraq war, because I think that would take away from the people who were actually shocked by the Iraq war, who, who were the Iraqis. They were the primary victims of that. But what I would say is that the failure of that movement, you know, the largest protest in UK history, as far as I remember, as far as I know, uh, at least of this side of for this, uh, you know, anti-war protest specifically. The fact that there was such a momentum that sort of crashed when it lost, when, when that momentum didn't lead to something that, they, that, they, that we wanted, which was to stop the war. That's how Stop the War movement obviously started. Then it sort of morphed into something else by mostly ignoring what was happening in, in Iraq after the invasion, what was, was, was happening, sorry. But then I think the, the financial crash sort of like created a different monster. So it's like, you, you, the way I try to visualize it sometimes is that when it comes to the Western left's understanding of the world, let's say, to kind of, you know, paint with very brush, uh, brush uh, strokes here, the, these dual shocks... Sort of like disoriented everything. If you remember, in the early days of 2011, there were lots of support for the Arab Spring, as far as I remember. This is this I can remember. I was 20. I remember very clearly that there was a sort of, you know, columnists and journalists and activists and others saying, well, you know, Occupy movement must send their solidarity to the to the Egyptians and the Tunisians and the Libyans and the Yemenis, etc., etc. But then, what? The 2011-2012, Syria started taking a different path, at least not that the others were necessarily much better, but at least different, much, much uh, different in a more vicious and, and, obviously, a more destructive way so quickly to the point where it sort of uh, upended this another expectation of what this Arab Spring was supposed, quote-unquote, to deliver. And I think this goes back to a unwillingness to accept complexity because there was no real reason to believe that 2011 would necessarily end up in amazing results. We could have hope that this would be the case and we could work towards it, absolutely. But nothing is written in stone. And the Assad regime, especially when it comes to Syria, since I tend to focus on Syria, Bashar al-Assad inherited his throne, essentially, from Hafez al-Assad. Hafez al-Assad, as most Arabs know, and I hope many other people would know, committed one of the most brutal massacres in the city of Hama in in 1982. And that sort of silenced three decades' worth of generations of Syrians. And that's why in the early days of 2011, many Syrians were opposing Syrian activists on the street, especially those of the previous generation, because the youth was really dominating the streets at the time. By telling them, you will be massacred, as we were in 1982. The same thing will happen to you in Homs, as happened in Hama. Unfortunately, Homs actually did suffer quite a lot. Halab, Aleppo also did. Daraya as well. Dara as well. And now we're seeing it in Idlib. You know, like, there's a lot of, and I I know I went from Western left here to to Syrians, but what I'm trying to say with all of this is that there is a, a certain resistance not in a good sense of it, a resistance to reality. And I think this goes back, among other factors, I don't want to say it's just one factor, but among other factors, to the concept of liquid modernity that Sigmund Bauman uh, coined some years ago, and its associated term liquid fear. Because I think it helps understand, some of helps understand, to emphasize, I don't think it's the only thing that that on, that explains everything i think racism has always been there for example but helps understand why the reaction to refugees for example arriving in europe created this sort of hostile reaction why the left is so confused and feels so lost about anything that isn't local that can focus on racial justice at home uh, reforming the prison system education etc etc but as soon as it comes to foreign policy, as soon as it comes to just not even foreign policy, forget governments here. As soon as it comes to just solidarity as individuals, exactly, solidarity, thinking as individuals, with uh standing in solidarity with other people, it's almost like they need permission from these thought leaders on the left before knowing how they should or shouldn't act. And I, I
0: guess we have to mention that racism is an aspect of a large part of it because um, there are large segments on the left who just refuse to uh, ascribe agency to brown people in other parts of the world, in the global South. When brown people revolt, it's because the CIA told them to. It's not because they have deeply held grievances and they're capable of their own mobilizing and their own organizing. It's part of uh, Western plots. And when, uh, Native activists advocate for solutions for their countries. Act, advocate for support. They're often shut down, silenced, ignored, and uh, even given a, a condescending kind of "Oh, you don't know what's best for you. You don't, you don't understand what's going on."
1: Well, ju- just in the past few months, you've had this with Venezuelans, with Nicaraguans, and with people from Hong Kong. You had prominent activists from all of these places. Trying to be as nuanced as they can in these situations, which can be very difficult if you are literally under attack, and so we have to at least be be humble enough to to see how difficult it might be. It must be in the in that situation to even be nuanced. Because I wouldn't, and I should say this open. I should say this op- uh, Honestly, I wouldn't judge someone from Venezuela who supports intervention against Maduro. I wouldn't judge that person because I am not in that person's shoes. I would still oppose that position. Because of my wariness of what that might do, but that's a difference. It goes back to our topic before. So there was, you know, Hong Kongers were saying were were basically being beaten on the streets by Chinese police, and they were being so organized to the point that I think Western leftists and leftists throughout the world and activists throughout the world should have should actually be learning from how Hong Kong uh, Hong Kongers have been organizing because some of the things that they've been doing is simply extraordinary. Instead, uh, you do have some. Solidarity here and there, to the credit of the Democratic Socialists of America, they did uh, stand in solidarity with people in Hong Kong. But what I would say is that is, even among those who stand in solidarity, or rhetorically stand in solidarity, there seems to be a sort of hesitation there that wouldn't exist if, it was, if the picture was clearer, let's say, which in our case means, for example, that if Israel attacks Palestinians, Well, then, you know, things are much clearer now. We know who's the good guy. We know who's the bad guy. So we stand with the good guys against the bad guys. But for some reason, when it comes to Hong Kong and China, well, you know, we don't know much about it. And instead of saying, well, okay, we don't know much about it. That's fine. We No one knows everything. Let's take some time and learn from the activists on the ground, from the writers on the ground, from the academics on the ground, because people in Hong Kong have access to the Internet, unlike people in mainland China. And they are more than capable of telling us what's happening instead of doing that it's almost like we look among those who look like us, which in this case western leftists et etc et etc, and we wait and 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 see well what are they saying? what is the conversation? How is the conversation happening on Facebook? How is the conversation happening on Twitter? who is dominating the retweets and the shares on Facebook and twitter et etc et etc and it's almost like we form our opinion by taking a bit of this a bit of that and kind of going with the flow so to speak instead of having principles that we then apply regardless of who the oppressors are and regardless of who the oppressed are
0: which is a bit of the worst aspect of uh modern wokeness culture the groupthink and uh needing to receive permission to think a certain way rather than being able to be motivated through your own internal principles and moral compass Yes,
1: I mean, it's certainly part of that. I, w- I, w- I wouldn't throw all of it uh, under the bus, so to speak. Or no, what, what absolutely is the expression? not. expression the baby with the bathwater. But yes, it does. it's worst manifestation when it is truly extreme and irrational can definitely feed into that, that's for
0: sure. So uh, you've mentioned as one possible solution to this crisis on the left, centering native voices and listening to people on the ground who are dealing with the issue and understanding, taking the time to understand what they're saying and ask them, and platform them even, and have them give the solutions to their context rather than applying poorly understood lessons from elsewhere and poorly fitting templates. What else are solutions to this?
1: Well, in addition to what you just mentioned, I think the basic principle should be that we stand in solidarity with people, not states. And that should be very, very clearly uh, delineated. It doesn't mean that if people uh, express themselves democratically that we ignore that, because that can then be manifested in state format. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the priority should be to stand in solidarity with people, not states. If you speak about Brazil, you might say, "Well, a majority of Brazilians, or at least uh, those eligible to vote, well, voted for this guy." Doesn't that mean that we should support what he is doing? And obviously, for me, it's no, because there are those who did not vote for this guy who are suffering the consequences of the votes of those who, those who did vote for this guy, for Bolsonaro. And I'm, sp- I'm thinking, obviously, especially of the native peoples of the Amazon. And for me, as someone who would always prioritize as much as I can, people over states, it's, it's a no-brainer. They are suffering from the extension of Brazil's colonial policies. To this day, it has barely changed when it comes to their rights. And they are suffering in a way that is going to hurt us all. And that's the whole point about this, this whole um, uh, concept that we, are, we should all act as though we are one whole, you know, the Gaia hypothesis of the planet. Putting that aside, the simplest form of that is that we are one species, and as cheesy as that sounds, we, are, we all go through experiences, and we need to understand that people go through experiences that may be different from ours. But you see what I mean? That I'm, I'm reducing it to an individual's level. Because I do think at the end of the day, especially when social media blurs the, differ- the space between one continent and other- another, one time and another, even blurs the historical obstacle when it comes to languages, now that you have, you know, translate on Twitter and Facebook and Google Translate and that sort of thing, there is this potential to create a sort of network based on basic principle that most people, when polled in nonpartisan non-partisan way, basically say that that's what they believe. They believe that the world should be fair, however you define fairness, but they at least believe that the world should be fair. There should be some justice, there should be some kindness, and there should be some sort of functioning system that benefits benefits most people instead of benefiting just the minority. And here I'm talking obviously economically especially, but also racially, also uh, gender-wise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Yeah, and... Um... Just in addition to my point before on uh, centering native voices, centering, uh, mm-hmm. I was also going to say the diversity of Western movements, in, in, especially in including women and people of color and other minorities, with the important caveat that that itself is not a solution because there, there is uh, plenty of representation for women of color and minorities among, you know, genocide deniers and tankies.
1: The conclusion of all this discussion, which I believe should be the first of many in different circles, podcasts, Twitter, Facebook blogs, uh, actual you know human to human face-to-face uh, conversations, is that we need to accept that the way things have been done so far is simply or simply is simply not working. There is a very, very broken way, uh, a broken framework of viewing the world the campus framework of viewing the world is, wasn't just outdated in the 90s. It was outdated in the 50s and in the 40s. It was outdated as soon as the Second World War finished. And for me, the fact that we are still uh, resisting the lessons of the decades that have passed is a bit terrifying because we are entering a new phase in human history, if you want, that has to do with things like the role of AI, the role of deep fake videos, the fact that bots are becoming increasingly convincingly human to the point where you're not always entirely sure whether the person you're communicating is a real person or not a person. And that at the hands of authoritarian governments, even at the hands of democratic governments, is something that we should be concerned about. And if we're still spending most of our time repeating basic principles that by now should be taken for granted, we are essentially borrowing future generations' time. We are stealing from their time because they will also have to suffer the consequences of our failures in the same way that we are suffering the consequences of previous, failure, of previous generations' failures. As well as learning from their lessons, I think that future generations will definitely learn from ours, but we should at least as much as we can make it easier for them and not, which is exactly what we're doing now, making it impossibly difficult to solve. That's
0: kind of terrifying the fact that um we have deep fake audio and video on the way and people already have no problem denying reality even without that kind of even without disinformation that convincing. But anyway, thank you so much, Joey. It's been a really insightful conversation and I look forward to continuing it in the future, especially on the topic of solutions. And uh you know, my solidarity goes out to people on the left wing of politics worldwide who are working against these pro-authoritarian trends and I think your work is extremely essential for our future. So as usual a link to Joey Ayoub's Twitter profile and past work will be in the description of the podcast and uh, we can also continue this conversation online. Thanks Joey. Thank you very much Ahmed. This is the part where I say the Arab Tyrant Manual is a project of Kawakibi Foundation. You can find a link to our Patreon below, and I can't emphasize enough how important your support is to us. We've decided to permanently connect our work to your support, and you will shape this project as we build it together. We consider ourselves to have completed our launch successfully once we've hit 1,000 supporters. Please click the link in the description. See you next time.
1: يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمان سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا
0: كتابا من كل قلب تألف
1: ويا زمان سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف